This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. So good afternoon, Joanna. Um, We are here at Mohonk Mountain House at the 2019 Brain Conference. Um, And we're with Joanna Christodoulou, who is the Associate Professor in the Department of Communication, Sciences, and Disorders. And she leads the Brain Education and the Mind team in the Center for Health and Rehabilitation Research. She integrates roles as a clinician, developmental cognitive neuroscientist, and educator. And we're delighted to have Joanna with us today. Um, um, And Joanna has just spoken to our group of educators um, on the topic of common myths among educators, which was really fascinating. So I'm just going to have a little chat with you about your work. And the first question is, um, what actually inspired you to do the work that you've chosen to do? So I can uh, answer that on the specifically regarding the MITS work that we reviewed today, as well as my broader research program. The MITS work that we reviewed today was in collaboration with some fantastic collaborators. The work was led by my colleague, Lauren McGrath, who is in Colorado, and her doctoral student, uh, Kelly McDonald. And that effort was really driven from this interest in understanding what frame of reference are educators approaching their work with. And also, what kind of training helps people be protected against subscribing to neuromyths or myths in general about behavior? Can we integrate trainings into our either graduate programs or professional development sessions that enable people to be armed with the scientific knowledge that protects them against subscribing to ideas that may derail um, further from what science helps us understand about what effective thinking theories or practices may be. So the work on the myths was really in collaboration with that team and that was a fantastic experience. My broader research program focuses on the development and difficulties in the world of reading. Reading is one of the most valuable skills any child can inherit, in fact any person of any age, whether you get to reading as an adult or as a child. And it gives you um, the currency that our society really works with. And so to consider how anybody can become a reader, given how much of your brain has to be rewired and every single child independently with support of their whole community um, has to make that happen. It's a small miracle. And it's less surprising that people struggle with it than so many people not struggling with it. So our work focusing on reading is really about understanding how it's possible and why for some children it's more challenging. And we really aim to answer the question, for whom should we do what? We'd like to get to the essence of, given that some children struggle with reading, can we do a better job of tailoring for whom, what kind of program, what kind of dosage, what kind of circumstances may be better suited to what their needs are? Uh, A lot of teachers have that intuition already. A lot of clinicians already Um, try and estimate what that might be, but from the scientific world, we'd like to get more powerful at trying to actually address that. So those are some of the motivations behind the work that we do. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if you could um, touch a little bit on implicit bias, which is one of the things you uh, discussed in uh, the talk this afternoon. Um, the, The research on implicit bias and what the impact that has on student outcomes. 
So we reviewed a study today that was done a couple of years back where they asked teachers um, what their explicit attitudes were regarding children with learning dis disabilities like dyslexia in their classrooms. And they also had them complete an implicit bias test, which is a way to measure not what you might say if somebody asks you what you think about something, but it's a test that tries to access what you may not even realize that you might, um, you might feel or think or perceive. In other words, if you have a bias because of age or gender or, or disability status, they, that might not be something that's um, available to you in your consciousness, but it may be something that's been learned and um, kind of you know, implicit, just as we're describing it. So in this study, they show that teachers' implicit bias has a predictive value for what students in their classroom would achieve if those students have dyslexia, whereas explicit attitudes didn't. That means that if we do a better job of figuring out what implicit biases may be underlying um, some, some of our thinking, some of our approaches to thinking about our students, we could suss that out, address it, and face it head on in ways that would potentially have really positive outcomes for the kids directly in our classrooms. Could you give an example of a sure. common implicit bias? Yeah, so one, one example might be that student has dyslexia, I'm going to lower my standards because I do not expect them to be able to achieve much of anything. Or that adjustment could be even a little bit. But the idea that you're adjusting a bar and bringing it lower just because somebody has a learning disability is a way that you're, to their detriment, adjusting their educational experience. I see. So um, that brings me to this next question. What are some of the most commonly held beliefs about dyslexia that are Myths that, or that are myths, yeah, yeah. That, that are mis misperceptions. Yeah, so dyslexia is actually a great example to think about because it has had a lot of attention. People have heard that word. It's not um, like its counterparts in the math world or the, the, the written world where you use terms like dyscalculia or dysgraphia. And so with that knowledge comes lots of other versions of communication that may um, derail people from the science. Dyslexia sometimes is over overly used, so maybe used as the generic term to describe any reading disability. That's um, not quite right. Dyslexia is actually quite specific to difficulties at the word level, and that could be with reading words accurately and or fluently or with automaticity. If you have trouble understanding what you've read, that's a different kind of disability, and that's more in the realm of just having a reading comprehension challenge or impairment. That's distinct from dyslexia, although they could overlap. So that's one in terms of the overuse of the word dyslexia to refer too to broadly to reading challenges. Another is that it's quite common for people to think that dyslexia actually is when you see letters backwards. And that's also a misconception, partly because for many children, it uh, takes some time and quite a, quite a lot of exposure um, to learn that certain letters change identity if you flip them on an axis. So if you have your letters B, D, P, it changes what it is depending on how it's oriented. But nothing else in our visual world is that way, and our brain is wired to be resilient against things changing because you flip them around. So up until about second grade, it's not so uncommon for kids across the range of reading abilities to make letter reversals for that very reason. And it is not true that everyone with dyslexia also has letter reversal challenges. It's true for a subset of them. What percentage would you say? That's hard to say, but there is a paper that came out earlier in the, in the past 12 months that I think tried to get at that, and I'd be happy to follow up and look into it. Okay, thank you. Um, 
I wonder if you could unpack the myth that we talked about this afternoon about learning proficiency and preferred learning styles. So um, an idea that's really prevalent in the education world is that learning styles exist and if you teach to them then you're going to do a better job of educating a child than if you didn't do that. And I want to differentiate how that could be a theory of instruction versus a theory of how the mind works. And this is, um, this is paraphrasing work that's been put out by Daniel Willingham and other colleagues who have thought about it this way. So if you think about learning styles as a theory of instruction, that would mean that for every student in my classroom, I'm going to find out what their preferred learning style is, usually by asking them, and I'm going to teach them in that way consistently and, uh, and kind of in a directive way. So if they're a visual learner, I'll expose them visually to information and expect that that's really going to be what's going to work well for them. If we look at the research that's explored learning theories as a theory of instruction, as I'm describing, that you're directly responding to someone's preference by exposing them to information in that domain, there isn't evidence that that actually plays out to advantage students in terms of them being paired with a learning style. Mm -hmm. That is one way of thinking about learning styles as a theory of instruction. The other way to think about it is a theory of how the mind works. And if we think of it from that frame of reference, it's actually, it really uh, it has it's an approach with research behind it. And what does that mean? If we, as a consequence of trying to suss out what people's learning styles might be, we, if we, as a consequence, then teach our classes in ways that have multiple modalities, multiple exposures, multi-sensory instruction, we're actually doing strategies and approaches education that have a lot of support, both from the cognitive side and from the education side. So if we think about how the mind works, it responds well to having different ways of learning, different entry points, different um, senses tapped into. Um, so in that way, you can have effective instruction if you're tapping into a range of different styles available, rather than styles, a range of different entry points and modalities for kids, regardless of what their expressed preference may be. And I want to highlight that teachers know their students so well, and identifying what might work for them is a fantastic idea. If you subscribe to the learning styles approach from the, from the perspective of a theory of how the mind works, that would work really well for the classroom. If you subscribe to it in a way that um, constrains someone's exposure to information in just a visual, auditory, kinesthetic way, there isn't research support at this time that that's going to work best for those students. Mm. Um, so I wonder, um, what do you aspire to achieve that you haven't yet achieved? Um, what are the kinds of uh, research that you are excited to work on that you haven't done yet? Uh, so the privilege of being in the academic world is being able to dedicate your time and your energy to questions that we haven't yet answered that can matter. And in the work that we do, we're really interested at this intersection of cognitive neuroscience and education, research and practice. In the work that I aspire to continue doing and to do more of, that would involve collaborative work with educators that directly have their voice represented in the work that we do. That would mean that we're answering questions of interest to them. We're um, trying to fill gaps of knowledge that would directly be relevant to their experience as educators and to honor what they do every day in terms of um, working with students or, or, or being administrators in school settings, et cetera. Conceptually, um, I spoke earlier about how we have a strong interest in thinking more about how do we tailor our educational practices 
in a scientifically driven way to what children might need. So right now, we oftentimes think about interventions as effective or not, good or not good. And um, at the education level, we usually have the curriculum on the shelf and we'll take it down and we'll, we'll use that uh, in a common way. And that's a good way to use your resources. But if we could think instead, not of interventions being effective or not, but for whom might be, they be effective? And why for some kids should we think that it actually might not work so well? Um, that's more of the reality of what happens. Most interventions um, may on average work, but that doesn't mean, but we're not teaching to the average in the classrooms. Um, we're teaching to all these individual students that we want to lift all up. And so trying to understand this question, for whom should we do what, means that we are going to think very carefully about how individual kids respond to specific types of interventions and try to understand more of that relationship of what drives that responsiveness for some and not others. So that means studying the, uh, the students, the intervention, and the, the context that that's happening in. So I'm wondering um, if you have one bit of advice for our uh, early childhood through 12th grade independent schools, mm -hmm. um, what would that be? Sort of, if you, could, if you could wave a wand and say, if schools would only do this, it would really be better for kids. Um, is there something you could, you could point out in that way? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've now flooded with many things. I'll just, I'll just um, share what comes to mind. Yes. The, first, the first instinct was to use your voice. As, um, as, as educators, as teachers, administrators in these settings, you have so many insights, so much experience, and so much um, direct exposure to observations, to questions, to really important ideas that I think should be expressed in ways that researchers can respond to. So my first thought is to invite a conversation where you use your voice with all of the thoughts and knowledge and insights in ways that could be really um, constructive and collaborative for next steps that uh, address research in the educational domain. Um, so it's, instead of a response that's directive, it's actually more of invitational. Um, and then, uh, well, you said one. Should I stop there? <laughs> You could know if you have more to say, by all means. Um, I would also invite you as, as um, practitioners to study what you do. So we talk a lot about meta, meta practices, and um, there are so many ways in which schools collect lots of data. So on intake at independent schools, there might be exams that students take or, or reports that they may have had to bring with them when they came to the school. And, I just invite schools to take a look at the assets that are the data points that include both qualitative observations that you can code and analyze, as well as the quantitative information you have on your students. If you can dive into the data that you already have in meaningful ways, I think it could, do, I could, it could bring you quite far in understanding who are your kids, what's working for them, what do you want to do different, how do you want to grow, what would you want to modify based on the data story. Well, that would be very powerful, I'm sure. And uh, if we, you can uh, help us figure out how to actually do that, I think there, are, uh, as you to. say, there's a there's a treasure trove of information that schools already collect. The, the the question is how to analyze it, how to use it, really how to make schools better because of it. Exactly. So I really appreciate your spending time with us today at this conference. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. 
Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.